This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Up next from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford, a presentation by Gail Neudorf from Care Canada entitled Humanitarian Disaster Relief Challenges from the Conversations Network. Hello, this is Doug Kay, the Executive Director of the Conversations Network. And today I'm excited to bring you another session from the Disruption Management Seminar held at Stanford by the Center for Social Innovation, September 8, 2005. Created by the Stanford Graduate School of Business, the Center for Social Innovation builds and strengthens the capacity of individuals and organizations to develop innovative solutions to social problems. And now, here's our presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. So as I'd mentioned before, we're going to talk about private sector and then public sector. And our next speaker is Gail Newdorf uh, from Care Canada, and she's the emergency coordinator there. And so Gail's going to talk about some of the planning activities that they have in place to help them uh, plan and prepare for uh, emergencies and disaster uh, relief. My name is Gail Newdorf, and I work for Care. I have uh, been doing emergency response for about oh, close to 20 years now. Every once in a while, I head back to business and, and work in that for, for a few years and then feel that the humanitarian aspect calls me back again. CARE is, is an organization, a non-governmental organization that works in 72 countries around the world. We are just coming up to our 60th anniversary. Uh, we started out in the 1945 working with Relief to Europe with the CARE package that some of you may uh, recall. Uh, assisting refugees and internally displaced in the European countries that were affected by the war. We work in a federation of 12 members, and I work in the Canadian office, which is why you see the little Canada behind my name. And yes, I'm Canadian. Um, I'm just going to talk a little bit. Uh, I think Adele's presentation really flows really well into what I'm going to be talking about. The issue of disaster risk management is still relatively new within the humanitarian environment. However, we're coming up to the end of the decade for disaster risk management. In 2005, there was a conference in January in Kobe where we finally were getting some headway around the issues of disaster risk management rather than only response. We're finally getting to a point where donor governments are saying it's not good enough to just respond. Portions of their dollars that they are providing to us um, are now being allocated to look at preparedness for the future, mitigating uh, particularly natural disasters, which we can have more effect around. And um, we're really starting to look at how the issues of poverty, the Millennium Development Goals, are impacted by disaster. And it's taken a long time to get to this point, but we're finally moving forward. My experience, however, is a little bit more towards that practical end. I'm being the one yelling down the radio about where's my stuff and some poor logs guy at the other end going, I don't have it yet. And um, so I'm going to be talking maybe a little bit more to my perspective and um, opinions around uh, logistics and supply chain management within the humanitarian uh, role. I'm just going to talk very quickly about the cycle of response. Um, I actually kind of look at it as a cyclone of response, because if you look at this, it kind of looks like that satellite image of just this 
this massive uh, movement going on at all different levels, and you're never at one point within this cycle. You're always at multiple points simultaneously. And it goes on not just for that first immediate month. It goes on for years and years in some cases, particularly in refugee environments where we are responsible to continue to manage camps for, as in the case of Palestine, 50 years. So it's just, it's not quite as easy as it looks, but let's look at it in a little kind of a simplified format. The response is generally looking at uh, the three areas of initiate, immediate, intermediate, uh, where you're waiting for your supplies to re uh, uh, come into the country, and then that really intense period where you're actually having to distribute it and get it to the person that needs it at the other end. I think just in this initiate portion here is where we are already in, this, uh, in a situation where we have done a needs assessment. This is a really critical part of the process. You cannot just go in, as Randy alluded, and then throw stuff out of situation. You're not actually going to uh, be able to provide what people really need unless you really know what they're talking about, know what capacities they have, know how we can build upon what they've got in, on hand. I think within this, this part of it, is, there's a couple of really, really important aspects. One is that we know we have money. Um, like it or not, there's a lot of pledges that are out there, but we don't always get that actualized for a long period of time. So before we can actually start, we need to know that we've got the funds available to us. I think another component that's really important here is when we have logistics or supply chain managers, they have to know what's going on on the ground. They have to have been out there, seen what it looks like, because they are going to be making decisions on your behalf. If they don't know what you're actually, uh, the situation is, how can they make certain procurement decisions and supply chain decisions about timing, about appropriate response, um, about the uh, type of standards and specifications that you need? One of the other issues that's really, really critical here is community involvement. Uh, it's very easy for us to say we know what you need. Uh, we've done it before. We've been, oh, I've been to Bangladesh, so I know what they need over in um, Chechnya. It doesn't work that way. We really need to talk to people. What did you bring with you as, an, as a displaced person? What other things do you need? What capacities do you have? Who in your community can already do certain things? And we don't have to replicate that. It's really, really important to take that into account. The local equivalents as well is a really critical portion of this. Uh, I've seen uh, flush toilets put into places where there was no water, uh, never mind a sewage system. And it, it's just really inappropriate um, responses that have sometimes occurred. I think another issue that's really difficult for us to um, identify, and I've never come across a tool that really works for this, is the situation that's escalating. Uh, in a natural disaster, usually you have a fairly stagnant situation quickly on. An event happens, certain people are affected, and it doesn't change substantially from that point. However, in, when you're in a political conflict response, uh, the number of people that are on the move, the escalating situation, the uncertainty of where uh, security or politics is going to place you makes it very difficult to anticipate what your needs are. And we need to take that into account here as well. In the intermediate stage is kind of where we, I, I would say, in the field you have less influence. You've placed your order, you're now waiting for the supplies to arrive. Most of the time we're relying heavily on a local supply chain, but there's often times when we need to go outside of that because of just the, the sheer capacity and, and requirements that are there. Uh, this is an area where there's very low le level of losses, but we do have a lot of other issues, particularly as NGOs. NGOs are working primarily in countries where the capacity, perhaps even the industry capacities are very, very low. And yet, on the other hand, we do not have a presence in places where we can actually um, pre-identify 
uh, supplies that might be necessary for, for the future. So we're very reliant on the freight forwarding system, um, and this is very costly to us. And I think it's one area where we need to start working on is identifying who could be a little bit more part of that supply chain with their own information about countries uh, where the, um, the items we require are actually being produced. Another issue is the cost, uh, especially with rising oil prices. The, it's no longer where you can find the cheapest component, but the cheapest to transport component. And uh, this is very hard to be understood sometimes with our donors. Uh, they always are saying, get the cheapest thing you can or the most cost-effective way that you can use our funds. But to say it might be cost-effective to buy those blankets in X place, but by the time we transport them over here, it's going to cost us a massive amount of money. What is a better way? Is there cheaper places that we can purchase in? Another delay in this step is the non-taxable uh, status that most NGOs have. This is good and it's bad. It saves us some money. We also go to the bottom of the list. Uh, there's um, a lot more paperwork. You kind of get shoved over in the corner. Um, there's changes in the process continually. One day it's this, the next day it's that, and you have to start all over again. And this is a real hassle uh, when you're really trying to get emergency supplies out. We also have delays with the governments we're actually trying to work with. Sudan being a prime example of where we have the Sudanese government who say, no, you can't bring that in because that aid might go towards one of our uh, partner, one of the conflict um, uh, uh, organizations, you know, it's going to the SPLA, whatever it is. And so we cannot bring those items in because it might be going towards war efforts on their behalf. On the other hand, you've got the U.S. government that says, well, there's sanctions against Sudan, so you can't bring a radio in or a vehicle in because there's sanctions against Sudan. So how do you work within all of these, these issues, and how do you prepare for them, know ahead of time what are going to be your constraints, and have found a procedure uh, to you that you can apply in any situation, small or large? The intense situation, which is the one I'm probably more familiar with, um, this is when it gets a little bit more difficult. This is what I call the creative leakage stage. Um, there's amazing abilities within these countries to um, slip things off the truck. I have one instance where um, I saw UNHCR identification badges and stamps and everything perfect, absolutely perfect. Never saw such a thing. Found it was made from the bottom of a shower slipper. The stamp was perfectly cut out of, the, of just a, a flip-flop used. They had done the whole idea, all done in the back of somebody's hut. And the only way we found out about it was the N was backwards in UNHCR. So eventually we noticed this, but it did take a long time and a lot of food went missing because we didn't, uh, you know, these small little places that, that people are very creative of finding mechanisms around. It's a weakness, I think, for most organizations across the board. UN, governments, uh, we all have this problem and it's one where we really need to have better systems in place better communications about what everybody else is doing so that we have the ability to prevent uh, losses at this point. I think another issue at this point is the distribution systems that are available to you. Uh, you'll see the photos, that truck, guys just tossing food off the back of it. And it looks really impressive. Aren't we great? We're getting our supplies out to the people that really need it. You look a little closer at that photo and the people that are getting the stuff are usually male and they're usually young enough to push and fight their way to the front of that truck. You'll rarely see any women pushing for that food. And so although it's fast and we get the stuff out, we don't get it maybe to the people that need it the most. It's unfair. Um, it doesn't address the issues of vulnerable people, particularly women, children, that would not have the ability to move to that front line. 
of the like uh, of uh, what we call truck and chuck. We're trying to use more approaches that are community-based. Again, back to this whole thing that the communities are the first ones, they're the first responder. Not the NGOs, not the government, nobody else. It's them. They are the first ones out there. They know their community. They know who is vulnerable. They know what's going to be some of the issues out there. Uh, they have systems in place. They have their own traditional way of doing things. Work with that. Uh, that might mean that there's long queues. It takes longer for us to know who is needing what and what is appropriate. But ultimately, it results in a fair approach to the situation. Everybody gets a fair share. The most vulnerable and needy get approached first. And secondly, we can register people for future responses. It's not just done one time. It's over and over and over and over again. And so if we get it done right the very first step, you're going to save yourself a lot of time and effort. Just on resource allocation, I'm going to come back to this one. I'm not going to talk a lot or even reference as much as I can to Tsunami because I think this is a one-off in many ways. It's a situation where for the first time in my experience, we've had enough money from private uh, donations from the, the public raised where we can actually do what we need to do over the time frame we need and not have to concern ourselves about whether an, a donor is going to actually contribute the money that they, they promised to us. Um, I'm going to give the uh, uh, example of Hurricane Mitch where less than 50% of the pledges that were made by international donors were actually um, given to Honduras and the countries that were affected in that area. And so we really um, don't often have the luxury of knowing what we're going to get, how much you're going to get, and for what time frame it's going to be available to you. I think another issue around appeal is knowing that this is an opportunity. I think it was referenced to several times here. This is a great chance to rebuild and do it better. So again, taking advantage of what we are asking for to not just throw stuff at a situation, but look at how can we make this an improvement so that what was a horrible situation for people actually results in a better life for them eventually. And I think one of the big things here is media. And um, it is so much of what we're trying to do is driven by the media. Um, we see, for example, the situation in Niger this year. Uh, October, November, it could be seen that there was a serious situation. It moves forward. Tsunami kind of took the, the focus off of it. It was only in May and June when those pictures of children starving, yet again, does this come to the media attention, finally gets to the attention of our donors, and finally we're getting money in. Way too late. And, and I must say that I think media and the way that they deal with emergency situations has a very big impact on the way that we work. I think also with the uh, appeal situation is the limited resources. There's these holes that you're never really sure about. Um, sure enough, this week, on schedule, UN starts saying we have shortfalls, we have shortfalls. It happens every year in September because the appeals that they have made, the subscription dues that they're supposed to be showing up have not um, actually been um, actualized by, by various uh, governments for a lot of different reasons. But what it means is Spend as hard as you can in the first six months of the year because after that you don't know what you're going to have. It's really unfair because people have expectations and they have um, thought that they would have this support, suddenly half rations, suddenly not to get school books, whatever it is that they're waiting for. I think it's just it's unrealistic. And we have to be at least honest in what we can provide to people and not make promises that cannot be um, actualized and committed to. I think uh, there's also changes to a situation, as I said before, these increased needs or changes in those needs. And the supply chain is really critical to this. It's a long 
can be a long space in between um, the actual requirement to the actual distribution to somebody. I'm going to give you an, a kind of a weird example, which is gumboots. Um, I was working in a situation where we were responding, very muddy, dirty situation, and we had ordered gumboots for our staff uh, who were slugging through mud, digging latrines, putting in wells, whatever it was that they were trying to do, working in the warehouse. And um, sure enough, every other NGO is also ordering gumboots, and there's a gumboot shortage. And they're, of course, only made in China, so by the time they make it over here, we can't get them. So gumboots arrive. Of course, in the meantime, we've hired additional 100 or 200 staff. There's not enough gumboots to go around anymore. The fights over those gumboots. Uh, people had very innovative ways, again, of camouflaging them or hiding them in a corner of the warehouse so nobody else could find them the next morning when they were needed. And if we can think of the, the fights and arguments that went on around that, just that one set of gumboots, can you imagine what goes on in the communities that are suddenly told there's not enough for everybody? And that's when we start to really affect um, the issues of conflict within what we are trying, where we are trying to be supportive. And we have a lot of, of influence over how well or how little conflict actually occurs in our response in humanitarian. I'm going to go into that a little bit more <laughs> shortly. I think some of the issues here are um, the supply chain, especially a local supply chain, is very easily interrupted, particularly in political unrest situations. Uh, poor infrastructure, there's disregard for the humanitarian assistance, and there's often long waits to negotiate access to people. And the increasing environment of insecurity, where there are times when we cannot supply assistance because it's just too unsafe for our staff to go into. And it's becoming a bigger and bigger issue for us. I think another supply chain issue is the loss of emphasis on logistics. Uh, when I first started in humanitarian response, it was very heavy on logistics, like getting stuff to people. And with time, we recognize that it's not just about the stuff, it's about rights. It's about the way that we treat people, about their dignity. It's about other, other things, about building their capacities and, and recognizing that they can be a major partner with us when we're responding. But I think the result of that has been perhaps a slightly lowering of the emphasis on logistics and how critical it is to the way that we can actually help people. And I really appreciated hearing a lot about capacity building and training, um, but not just training. It really is an accreditation procedure. It's getting our national staff, who are the majority of our staff, up to a, a standard that is internationally recognized and provides them with an opportunity to, to not just learn on the ground, but in a professional environment from businesses such as what's going on right here. And I think another issue around that is the southern context as well. We were having a, a bit of a discussion about where in the south, in, in terms of, uh, let's say, the third world, if you want to call it that, is there good um, academic institutions where people can go that is cost effective for them. They cannot afford to come to the United States at $20,000, $30,000 to do a degree. They cannot afford to give up a year of time in order to be accredited. What are the kind of tools that we can provide to them? So it, it's another, I think it's one of the areas that really needs a lot more emphasis and I don't think we're anywhere near to understanding what can be done. The last step really is, is what the first step is, evaluate and make changes. And this is a real opportunity, uh, not always utilized from the porous of evaluation reports I have to go through. Um, I can only imagine how much cyberspace is up there with all those PDFs out there on this and that and the other thing. But anyway, not go, we won't go there. Um, but, and this is really where one aspect is not being included is the evaluation of the results and the impact of preparedness and mitigation. 
very hard to say what preparedness activities resulted in. Uh, it's very easy to criticize and say we didn't do enough. But if you look at about an evacuation process, how many lives did that save? Or did it? Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was part of the problem. What other mitigating things have we done that actually had a, a positive impact? And it, it's hard to um, find the linkages that actually provide you with a direct um, uh, perspective on that. But I think more and more we need to look at mitigating and prepared, preparedness. And we are eventually, uh, we're finally starting to get donors interested in this and saying it's not good enough if you're just going to respond. You have to tell us what you did beforehand. How are you ready for this? It's cyclones every year. You should know better than this by now. And we have to be accountable for that. This is the hard part. Um, every time I look at this slide, I see about five more institutions that be, should be added to it. I'm just going to give you a little bit of background on this very quickly is the three kind of major components around this. Uh, actually, there's four. One is are, are the governments, local governments, rebel groups uh, that you're working with actually in the context of, of the situation. The community itself, the local community, the displaced community, a lot of different actors around here. But just to differentiate between the humanitarian response partners, there's the Red Cross, which is essentially independent. It's funded by governments and private sources and is usually in the response mode, although they do a lot of disaster preparedness as well. Um, ICRC is the conflict branch. IFRC, the Federation, is more around disaster response. And they strongly utilize a local component within their Red Cross chapters. And it's a very, very strong system and a lot of lessons to learn from them in the way that um, other organizations respond. The UN uh, accountable to a global body internationally, and they're funded primarily by global dues, although some of them do do private fundraisings, for example, UNICEF. And I think we're seeing more and more of this around the UN, uh, different UN departments doing more. And then you have the NGOs, which are nonprofit. Uh, we're generally privately funded, but also get government grants as well. The, probably the bigger difference here is that we're long-term and a little bit more sticky because we do do development programs as well as humanitarian response and we see the significant linkages between these two and, and that we, we need, again, that whole cycle of um, support to a community, not just during one crisis or only during the development phases. And this includes local NGOs as well, which are a critical partner. Uh, more and more the capacities are being built of these local, local non-governmental organizations and it's fantastic to see them take on a very strong role. I think our common, uh, just to, again to understand, our common um, ground is on the humanitarian imperative of neutrality and impartiality. Uh, we have a lot of codes that are, are, are similar across all of the humanitarian response organizations. Uh, this is the NGO code of conduct, but we also have sexual exploitation code of conduct. Uh, the use of trafficking in humanitarian response was uh, really hit the press about a year, uh, 10 years ago where it was found that a lot of sex trafficking, even amongst the aid workers, was an extreme problem. Um, and so we now sign on to a code that says that we will really address the issues of exploitation um, and, and trade, um, the sex trade when we are working in a humanitarian or in any type of response. Sphere standards, which Randy talked about. We have people in aid, which are supposed to put standards around the way that humanitarian aid workers work. And then, of course, the law of uh, international law and human rights. I think one other thing to just really look at is the way that aid uh, affects conflict. It's very obvious that aid um, is part of the economy of war, and that's something that we have to accept. 
the issues of tra trafficking and the sex trade, particularly on transportation lines, is slowly being addressed, but it still is a really big issue. How, when we are responding in a humanitarian response, are we uh, actually doing more harm than we're doing good? And it's one of the things that's come up again, probably in the last 10 years, is really a big issue for us. It's finding the ways that we can understand where we are having impacts negatively as well as positively. I think one of the bigger challenges here as well is consistency and coordination. Um, I'm going to pick on the donors in this case. I'm picking on them a lot, actually, I guess. But <laughs> they are my sometimes a thorn in the side um, and sometimes a sword in the side as well. Uh, for example, you've got 12 donors, anywhere from $50,000 to $5 million. Some are going for three months. Some are going for one year. All have different start dates. All have different end dates. Everyone has a different procedure. Some have to buy American. Some have to buy a European. Some have different reporting standards. Some are requesting an audit in the next five years. Some are requesting it immediately. All of these different mechanisms that, again, affect the way that we're able to do business. And this is really critical for our supply chain. And again, the need for a real systematic approach and a comprehension of um, what the different standards and demands are going to be made on, on that whole chain. It's not as easy as just going out and buying stuff. There's a lot of different uh, critical issues that need to be considered. A couple of last things on issues around why we do on occasion have poor supply chain management. I think a lot of this has got to do with transparency and standards within supply chain management. Um, I am aware of at least six different um, SEM mechanisms. UNHCR uses a different one from World Food Program. Um, SUMA is part of the Latin American um, health organization's way of, of working with donations and supply chain. Um, there's a number of them across the board within the NGOs, and there isn't a single system that really, or some reflection of how these different systems are systematically um, addressing the, the same issues. What are the, where is the, the positive parts of them? Where are we having problems? Where can we put more focus around how we're adapting the, the processes that are in place? The other issue is on, around accountability again, and back to that issue of accountability for the people that we're actually working with. Uh, there's a lot of, of things, and I think they've all been, been addressed on already, but I think one of the, the things that we really have to think about is the successes that we do have. And there's a lot of positive uh, uh, issues that uh, we address. We actually do do good, even though sometimes it's very um, difficult to recognize that when you're being criticized in the press or criticized in the number of books that come out. I'm waiting for the tsunami one but any day now. But this is a success right here. This is a, um, he's actually, I think he's about 14 years old. His name is Abdi. And he, he is, to me, just a, a photograph of what we're, we're here for and what we're all about. Um, he was the end product of a very successful supply chain that got the things that he needed to him on time. Uh, he was essentially starving to death. And because we were able to get him the support, the medical aid, the food aid that he needed, he was actually this big smile. He was coming back from the, the edge of death. He had the resilience and determination to survive. And we were able to support him with that determination, the determination to bring him what he needed that he could not provide for himself. And I think it's really important to remember that that's, that's, this is why we're here. It's, there's a lot of other things going on, but this is why we're ultimately here is to make sure it happens. I think just as a final note is just some of the ways forward that we can work together. 
Uh, primary is just looking at the expertise within commercial environments. There's a lot of great tools. Adele's presentation was just perfect, and I want to get that from her and kind of manipulate it. And, you know, work already done. Why, why reinvent the wheel? It's, it's a great, great um, uh, preparedness document that we could really use, and a lot of the tools and um, scenario planning that they were working with uh, is very applicable to what we do as well. Uh, the mitigating and preparedness issues, uh, this is where our development programs can really be involved in the way that we respond to emergencies and can be much, uh, they have an influence pre-disaster uh, that is, um, I don't think we utilize sufficiently. And I, I, more and more the emphasis is, coming, emphasis is coming back to, if you're doing an education project, what can you do for disaster mitigation? If you're working with an HIV program, what can you do to, to mitigate disasters? And we're getting stronger and, and more capable around this. I think the last thing is to consider when we're designing tools of the people that really are the end user of those tools. Um, what do they need? Uh, they're going to be able to tell you when you do that assessment. They're the, they're the ones that know, and we're surprised sometimes with what they ask for is a necessity over what we thought we should know by now. I think if you talk to that lady that just watched her healthy child go to malnourished in a two-week time frame, well, there's the timeline you've got on your supply chain. Exactly there, two weeks or you've lost it. I think we have to also talk about what they need and not just what we feel good about providing in the, in the sense of we are often asked not to even come in. We're a security risk to many of these communities. By providing them aid, they are at a security risk that we don't even understand. And we think we're doing something good and actually we're, we're, we're creating a worse situation for them. So I haven't maybe talked so much just directly around the preparedness and mitigation aspects of things, but I think you're, I hope this will just supply you with a bit of a field perspective about what's going on and, and what we need what we need to be developed, what we need from business to understand uh, about what the NGO and the humanitarian aid community is doing. Thank you. Not so fast, Gail. <laughs> I want to take a few minutes to have some questions, but I did want to start by asking about the planning. In the cycle of response that you shared in the beginning, you talked one about one of the stages was called an appeal for resources. And I think Randy made a comment about this in his presentation earlier. And that was the idea of possibly working in advance with suppliers for materials. So I was wondering, can you say a little bit about what, if anything, that CARE does, and then what you think could be done for various and sundry kinds of materials? I think there's a couple of things there. And the, the first one is the local capacities of knowing that. NGOs that are, are uh, committed to working in a country for a long period of years, such as CARE does, where 40, 50 years in many places, have an obligation to understand what's available in country as well, because that's the most immediate response that you can have. Uh, there are prepositioning um, components that go on. There's a number of NGOs, UN departments, militaries that have capacities ready to fly, but that's still a 48-hour time frame. So I really don't even consider knowing what's outside of the immediate locale as something that we can rely on. Secondly, because everybody wants it, it's often sucked up faster than you can actually get to it. So I think the, in terms of materials, it's knowing what's available to you, knowing who your suppliers are ahead of time, all that preparation that's done particularly within our, our logistics. That kind of relates to your comment about needing capacity of people who would understand the logistics. Mm -hmm. And can you say more about what maybe you think should be done to expand that capacity? I think this is uh, the most important component is our national staff. Um, 
they have the language, they have the cultural appropriate understanding. What they often don't have is the opportunity to learn. Uh, they cannot go to international conferences because they have the wrong nationality. They cannot go because they do not have the fun money and funds to be able to actually pay for some of the courses that are out there. And so finding an opportunity to bridge with um, academic organizations is one way we're doing this. Another one is trying to work um, a little bit more um, on a congruent basis around capacities. Uh, there's seven NGOs currently working on what is the interagency working group, which is looking at what are all the emergency capacities we have over these seven large agencies and where can we share. So there's this building of capacities around what's already available to you and how can you, um, with the small amount of money that we get for training, actually create something that is of value when the emergency happens. So that's a message to the folks in academia, right? Yeah. Okay. Send us uh, your stuff. Let's take a few moments and ask for, we have some time for a few questions. And uh, Cassia has the microphones ready to go. Who wants to start? Kurt Sunderbrook from Hewlett Packard. I was um, curious about your remarks about donors and their audit requirements. And I'm wondering if there, and maybe this is something that's already addressed by an organization like yours. Is there an opportunity for something that would be analogous to some sort of ISO standards for N NGOs so that it would be a more consistent way of reporting out to donors how the money get, is getting used and that they know that there's some reliability and some yield yeah. around the, their contribution? There is a, a system of um, kind of accreditation with NGOs. And, and for example, in the United States, there's Interaction, which is uh, a nonprofit that kind of coordinates all the various NGOs, five or 600 of them actually, that are American NGOs. It's another one in Europe. There's one in Canada, similarly, to try and look at some accreditation process. The other thing that's kind of interesting is in about um, 2003, 12 governments signed on to the Good Humanitarian Donorship um, Agreement, which is a set of principles which are trying to actually make their requirements a little bit more standardized as well. So if you have an audit requirement from the government to DFID from the UK, you have an audit requirement from the Canadian government, they're very similar so that you're not having to duplicate your efforts during some of these, uh, these basic standard requirements and, 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 uh, that are, are going to come from a donor, obviously. My question is regarding the supply chain itself, you know. Uh, since you are, you have global operations and you know which are the chronic areas of the world where you have, you have problems like famine and, you know, or natural disasters. Are you building any sorts of inventories or, you know, like, like in Africa or in Bangladesh or, you know, some areas? Are you building any sort of inventory so that you don't have to start asking for resources and, you know, especially uh, talking in terms of food grains, water, and medical needs, you know. Are there centers, you know, where you can build inventories for this thing so that supply chain is shorter than, than what it is usually? There's definitely a lot more work around that. There are at least uh, five or six major centers that I'm aware of, uh, primarily through the United Nations. It's a very expensive undertaking, and I would say for most NGOs, it's not very doable. It's, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars to manage a warehouse that's just being kept in reserve. So I think it's really important to have the pre-positioning, and we're seeing more and more of that, or an understanding of uh, the cyclic um, com components of responding, particularly with food requirements, and eventually with water, as that's becoming more of a, more of a resource. But I think what I would prefer to see is more emphasis on the mitigation. I don't think there's any such thing as prevention personally, but I think mitigation is where the money should be going. 
if, uh, why is the famine occurring in the first place? Why, what is causing that to occur? And that's what we should be working on, is addressing those underlying causes, rather than putting a lot of money into just preparing and responding only. So I would like to see more emphasis around, as we were, so many people have mentioned, this preparedness and mitigation aspect. Hi, Bruce Cahan from Urban Logic. Um, from your point of view, is the information on the web organized enough to respond effectively in country? And by that I mean, it seems that an awful lot, at least domestically, of the NGOs spend maybe 20, 30% of their annual budgets trying to figure out who they're trying to help. And there's no shareware. Um, there's no across all the um, uh, city uh, development agencies or, or United Way agencies. Everyone almost as strategically valuable business information mm -hmm. guards their knowledge of the communities that they're serving. And I think that paradigm may repeat at the international level where the in-country knowledge of who needs the help, the routes to get it, who you can trust, is viewed as tactical or strategic information harbored by the aid agency itself. And I'm not suggesting that that's gone. Sometimes it could be done to protect those people. I'm sure of it. Yeah, there, there are those circumstances. But, but I'm, I'm asking, really, just from an IT point of view, how would that shareware evolve? Mm -hmm. um, specifically, things like um, geospatial resources. Uh, do a lot with uh, computer mapping. You know, is there a central way that there are spatially enabled facets to the data that you have to deal in all the time that could be shared across other groups? This is this is cutting edge, believe it or not. Um, the environment is rather technophobic and uh, not reliable as well because you're working in some place without a generator or without the ability to use. But there, we're seeing a lot more GPS, um, just being able to, to map out what's going on is a huge um, inroad for us because it used to be, have to be done all by hand and, or by, by foot. Um, and, um, but what has happened, I would say, only in the last couple of years is a improved coordination role, particularly by the UN. OCHA is a coordination body for the United Nations. And without that coordination, that's when things really go south. Go south. Well, that's not very appropriate. But the, in, uh, in the sense of um, everybody wants to respond, you want to respond fast. And without somebody saying, you're going here, you're going there, you're doing this, that's your, your specialization, fine, do it. And we really need that coordination because I think we do all, if in every NGO you've got a strength that is very, very valuable or a level of community knowledge that is very, very valuable. We haven't found good mechanisms to utilize that knowledge. And it's, it's really only coming um, to the forefront as an issue and, and one that we're trying to address, I would say, in the last three or four years. Really, it's very, very recent. It's a shame, but it's really recent. Edgar? Um, Edgar Blanco from MIT, and my question is, is about the organization of the teams. We heard earlier about how the virtual teams in Mercy Corps are structured, and I wonder how that works in your organization, and uh, you can comment on the pros and cons of, of it. 
I don't know if we're as organized as Mercy Corps. <laughs> to be honest, we, we really, again, rely significantly on what's available in-country. Uh, those are the staff that have the previous experience, often in multiple emergencies as well. So what, we're trying, what we generally try and do is say, where do you have a gap that we can bring an international support into? If, for example, um, it just happens to be audit or year-end and finance is really... Um, overwhelmed by even just you know doing what is a standard procedure, do we need to bring in additional finance people to help you out? Um, this is a situation that requires a significant amount of water and sanitation support. Do you have the technical expertise there? Do we need to um, um, augment what is already available? So I don't think we would say we have a very specific team approach. It's looking at what is required on the ground for this particular context. Um, it's very difficult to say one context that will apply to another. So what is here? What do you have? What do you need? And then responding with the appropriate um, expertise from around our global um, databases of, of uh, staff that are available to go in and assist. Okay, let's break here. And I want to thank Adele and Gail for their great presentations. You've been listening to a presentation from the Disruption Management Seminar produced by the Center for Social Innovation and held at Stanford, California, September 8, 2005. For more practical and provocative ideas, check out the Center's award-winning publication, the Stanford Social Innovation Review at www.ssireview.com. The series producer for this program is Bernadette Clavier. Post-production audio by Bruce Sharp. My name is Doug Kay, and I hope you'll join me next time for another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Thanks for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.